chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to join with me there. Exodus chapter 3. Uh, we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 15, but we'll start this morning by reading all of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out to a land of good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, That I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to them, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and all the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now let us go, please, three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give, you this, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house, 
for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. You may be seated. It's a bit longer of a passage than we normally read at the beginning, but I found it was fitting to give the whole context of this passage where God declares to Moses his covenant name of Yahweh, which in English we render as Lord, capital L-O-R-D, or the I Am. This is part of our declaration that, that as we say together, beginning a new series in the Apostles' Creed, as, as a bit of a rubric, not that this creed is the thing we're preaching, but rather these are, these are topics, an arrangement of passages that we are studying through. And so we begin, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. We confess that we believe this God because this is the God who has revealed himself to us as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the God who has created, who sustains and upholds and governs all things, the Lord Almighty. The Apostles' Creed, as we begin into this new series, just a little bit of historical background. It is a, a creedal statement of faith. It's a declaration of what we believe. That's what a creed is. That's what creed means. It means I believe. It's called the Apostles' Creed. The old story was that uh, it was written each of the 12 lines by one of the apostles. That's probably not exactly accurate. The first origins that we can see from it is that an early form of this creed was found in the, the church at Rome in about 200. That in the writings of the early church, we, we know that they used this creedal formula, this statement of their belief, as they were baptizing new converts into the church. That they would come naked on Easter morning into a cold water in front of all their friends, a little embarrassing, not quite how we do it today, they would lead them into the water and they would ask them, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And they would say, I believe, and they would dunk them. And then they would ask them, do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, and, and the rest of the creed dunk them again. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? I believe and dunk them again. Now, that's not a prescription for us. That's something that the church has done historically. I don't see an exact need for three different dunkings. But it is instructive for us that this is an ancient summary of the Christian faith, that this is a, an essential declaration of the truths that God himself has revealed to us in his word through his prophets and apostles. This is not an inspired creed. We have none of those but what are found in Scripture. But it is helpful for us as a, a short summary of what we believe the Scriptures to confess that we believe, as we've confessed here before, in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell, and the third day rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the Universal Church. We believe in the, the fellowship of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. 
This is a short and simple summary of what we confess, not just as our church, but as believers. That these are essential elements, even if you don't know this creed in this order, is not very important, but for you to believe these truths is essential for believing in the God who has revealed himself to us. If someone comes to you and says that I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Holy Spirit, that's a bit of a red flag. That gives you good enough grounds to not really believe that they are a Christian. Because to believe in God, Father, Son, and Spirit is definitional for what a Christian is. Someone who follows the incarnate Christ, who reveals himself to us as the second person of the triune God, who gives to us the Holy Spirit and as he is commissioned by his Father. We believe these things because they are taught to us in the Scriptures. That is, Albert Moeller says, that this creed is a summary of what the Bible teaches, a narrative of God's redemptive love, and a concise statement of basic Christianity. All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. The reason that we repeat these together often in our worship services, the reason that we're using this as a rubric for our studies these next few weeks, is because it is a helpful summary of the essential aspects, at least some of the essential aspects, of what it means to be a Christian. And so as we preach these things, our commitment as a church plant and Lord willing as a church is to let God's word set the agenda, to do what is called exegesis, to take meaning out of the text of Scripture, to explain it and to apply it, not to already have preconceived notions and to read that into Scripture. So what we are seeking to do here is not to take this idea of the Apostles' Creed or any one of these topics and to just use the topic as a mere springboard, to read our ideas into the text and to misuse the text. Our aspiration as we go through these next couple weeks is to do... Um, a method of preaching that was very popular in the Puritans, where they would take a text of Scripture and let that set the agenda. They would explain the text of Scripture, they would exposit this text of Scripture, and they would draw from that text of Scripture a particular doctrine, not imposing something foreign on the text, but letting the truth revealed in the text come out and come alive. And with that doctrine, they would apply it. So that's the general method that we'll be going through. Of course, the, the, normal, uh, the normal meat and potatoes of our preaching here will be working book by book through the scriptures, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But it is helpful every once in a while to have a different format of things, still letting God's word set the agenda. So with all that in, in pretext and preface, let us look back at Exodus chapter 3. We have this here in the context of Moses, who is raised in, in the houses of royalty in ancient Egypt. This is after, uh, after the book of Genesis, where God creates all things, where Adam and Eve fall and all their family descends into sin, where Noah and his family are saved through the flood, where God calls Abraham and his line, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to come to a promised land where God works especially through the line of Abraham as, as a chosen people, and that these people find themselves in Egypt seeking relief from a famine, that the whole world is suffering at the day. But these people, the descendants of Abraham, 
were there over the course of hundreds of years, 400 years plus at this point, over the course of which the ruler of Egypt, the pharaohs, have become so threatened and hostile to the Jewish people that they have enslaved them and subjugated them. So we see already in the first two chapters of Exodus that the people of Israel are suffering under bondage and slavery and forced labor, and that many of their own children are being slaughtered in order to keep them weak as a people and to keep them from rising up against the pharaohs. And so Moses is one of these Hebrew children, miraculously delivered and preserved and even raised in Pharaoh's own household. But when he comes to maturity, he ends up killing a man, an Egyptian, and, and running off into the wilderness. But it is here in the wilderness of Sinai that he finds a lady, he falls in love, he marries into Jethro's family, and he's tending Jethro's flocks. When he hears the angel of the Lord, the voice of God speaking to him from a burning bush, these first few verses, that as Moses is tending his flock on Mount Horeb, or called elsewhere Mount Sinai, that he is tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, and an angel of the Lord, the text says, appears to him in a bush. And Moses notices that this bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed. And so he goes, he turns aside and looks at this miraculous sight. And when he comes close, he hears the voice of the Lord calling out to him from the bush. The bush that calls to him, Moses, Moses. Moses says, here I am. And the Lord says, stop. Take off your sandals and then come near. Don't come in with, with polluted shepherd's sandals because where you're coming into, the presence of the Lord is holy ground. And so Moses comes. And the Lord who has revealed himself to Moses, he reveals himself as the God of his people, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the Lord of their forefathers, the Lord who had promised them a land of plenty and blessing, who had brought his forefather Abraham out to the land of Canaan, who had guided them and preserved them and provided for them these generations. And he calls to Moses, and Moses hides himself in fear because he's afraid to look at this God who is embodied now as a flaming fire, an appropriate image for the Holy One of Israel. And in 7 through 12, the Lord tells Moses that he has heard the afflicted cry of his people in bondage. That the Lord has heard the cry of his people of Israel. He has heard their, their moans and their groans as they suffer under the whip of Egyptian taskmasters, putting them to forced labor, who are forcing them to, to work themselves to death, making bricks to build the elaborate monuments to the pharaohs who are being subjugated, the cries of, of mothers as their children are being taken away to be slaughtered. The Lord has heard the cries of his people. The Lord has remembered his covenant with them. The Lord has remembered the promise he made to bring the descendants of Abraham to a land of plenty. And we know across the grand scope of Scripture that this ultimately will come to the great seed of Abraham, the singular seed, the Christ, it would be a blessing, not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world. But for him to be faithful to his promises, to bring this 
this plan of redemption to completion. He must be faithful to his promise. He must keep these people preserved. He must rescue them. He must deliver them from the bondage that they have found themselves in. And the Lord, being gracious and kind, he hears his people and he provides a way for them to be redeemed. He sets a plan in place. He tells Moses that he will send Moses to go to Pharaoh, whose household that he grew up in, but from whose presence he has fled. That Moses will go not as a shepherd, but as the speaker of God Almighty. That He says he will be like God unto Pharaoh. He will be the authoritative prophet of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would call Pharaoh to release his people, to come back to this mountain and to worship. But Moses is, is fearful. He's afraid. We can read the, the following chapters and see the different ways that Moses is, is kind of cautious, but reserved and, and maybe a, a little fearful and maybe in some ways coming up with excuses for the great task that's set before him. He says, if, if I go to the people, Lord, if, if I go to the elders of Israel and I, and I said, God appeared to me in a bush and they asked, what God? In the context of Israel or of Egypt, there are, there are many gods. The God of the sun and the God of the Nile and the God of the harvest. What, what God appeared to him in a burning bush? What do I tell them? And he says to Moses, he says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent me to you. And more profound words can hardly be spoken in the language of humans. More profound declarations can scarcely be made in intelligible language. That who God has revealed himself to be, though he reveals himself in many ways throughout all of the scriptures, though he reveals to himself in many ways through the creation around us, he reveals himself in some of the most profound language imaginable, and yet also some of the most simple. Using everyday language, he is who he is. I am who I am. Language that is so simple, it, it's, almost, it's almost confusing. Because it, at depth it reveals the self-existent, eternal, and perfect God upon whom everything else is dependent. He is the God who has been who he was, who is who he is, who will be who he will be. The God who was and is and is to come. The God who is eternal, unchangeable, perfect in every way. John Gill, a Baptist theologian and pastor, says that this name signifies the real being of God. His self-existence. That he is the being of beings. It also denotes his eternity and immutability. His constancy and faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. It includes all of time, past, present, and yet to come. Then in God revealing himself to, and to Moses, he reveals himself to us, not just as the God who was present to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just the God who did call them to a promised land, but the God who is, who was, and forever will be. This is the self-existent and eternal infinite and almighty God. This is Yahweh. 
the covenant name by which he reveals himself to Moses. Tell them that Yahweh has sent me, sent, sent me to you. That this is the God of the patriarchs. And yet even to them, he says, he had not revealed this name. He'll say in chapter 6, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by name the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. This is a special revelation of the covenant name of God by which he is to be known for all generations. This is a name that he had not yet revealed to them. This is a name that he reveals more and more about who he is, his existence, that he is the fount of all being. And this is the nature of of God's self-revelation, is that it's progressive. We see this throughout the scripture, that God does not reveal everything that he is, all that he is, all at once. He reveals himself truthfully to us by step, by step, by step throughout all the scriptures. So that as we see in the new covenant, the fuller revelation of himself in the person of Christ, the incarnate son, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we see more clearly his triune and eternal nature as Father, Son, and Spirit. But that is who he has always been. That is who he always shall be. There is no change in this divine being. He is always perfectly good and mighty and true. He always is who he is, a good and glorious God. And yet he is not a God who is far off and distant. He is not a God of, of platonic philosophy who is impersonal who is entirely distant and uninvolved from his creation. He is not a God who is... He is not a God who has remained far off, but in his wisdom, in his grace, and in his kindness has condescended to us that we may know him as, as best as fallen human beings can. That it is impossible for finite minds to understand what is infinite. It's been said in many times and in many ways. It's like trying to hold the ocean in a teacup. That trying to understand all of who God is is beyond our comprehension, and yet through many ways He reveals Himself to us as God Almighty, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the Creator and Sustainer of all things, as the Great I Am, as Yahweh. This is the Lord who has revealed himself to Moses, to the people of Israel. This is the God who has revealed himself to us by his word and spirit. And this is the God who then proceeds to tell of his plan of deliverance that he sends Moses to go and to bring the people of Israel out that they may know and serve their covenant Lord, that they may bring to Yahweh the worship that he is rightly due that they are to speak his word to Pharaoh. But he knows that Pharaoh shall not listen, that Pharaoh has been hardened in heart, and that he shall not respond until the mighty hand of the Lord shall force his people away. The mighty hand of deliverance, the mighty hand of the God who has heard their cries, and it is kind and compassionate enough to effect their salvation. 
and even more so, that they will not just be delivered from the land of their bondage, but they shall plunder the Egyptians as they go. They shall not only be led away as slaves into the wilderness, poor and and with no earthly possessions to sustain them, but they will give them even so much favor with their Egyptian captors that they will be given all of the gold and silver that they can carry into the wilderness. That this God of deliverance, this is the God who reveals himself to us through his word. This is the God in whom we confess to believe. When we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker in heaven and earth, we declare our belief in Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one who has revealed himself to us through progressive steps, through the unfolding of redemptive history, and now even fully and finally in the person of Jesus Christ, that we see him more and more for who he is until the day of consummation, where we behold him with no veil, with no human limitations of sin to keep us from seeing more truly who he is. There's an element to which that God must condescend to us, that he must speak to us in a, in a form of accommodated language, that God has to reveal himself to us. No one can lock himself in a room somewhere and just think hard enough and then come up with the Trinity. No one can, can stuff themselves into a barrel and reason their way up without external revelation up to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That the true God of the Bible does reveal himself in many ways through his creation. But to know him truly as he is, he must be known as he has revealed himself to us. That this God must step down from his transcendence in such a way that he reveals to us by divine revelation that we need him to tell us his name, his nature, his works. We need this God to reveal himself to us because he is far beyond the limitations of our human reasoning. That we have a need for him to use a, a form of accommodated language, even the language of Father and Son and Spirit. We have a human conception of these relationships which which only barely glimpse at the eternal of divine realities. That even the language of God, of the I Am, of, of the Almighty, they are true so far as we understand them. But the reality of things is even greater and even deeper than the human mind can fathom. That God, in His wisdom and in His kindness, condescends to us when we think of condescension today, the way that we popularly use it, it's kind of a negative thing. When you hear they, uh, when you speak about someone condescending to you, you generally mean that they kind of talk down to you in a disrespectful way. At least that's how I hear the word commonly used. But in God's condescension, it's not a, it's not a proud or boastful or arrogant way of speaking. It is, it is the way that a parent speaks to their child who is just beginning to learn language at first. It is, it's the way in which a nurse babbles to a child in a way that they can understand, Calvin says. That God's condescension to us should make us rejoice because he has spoken to us in a way that we can understand. That the one who formed our ears and our minds has the capacity and 
has indeed revealed himself to us in a way that we can use them to understand. But this self-revelation demands a response from us. Then when Moses saw and heard who God was and how he revealed himself, even when he just declares himself to be the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses hides his face. Then when he declares who he is, Moses is brought to worship. As we read in our, our confession earlier, that the Lord declares himself to be a God of faithful and steadfast love, but a God who is also righteous and holy, and who does not, does not smirk at sin and take it lightly. And that drives him to worship. So this condescension, this revelation, it demands a response. It demands the response of faith. When we say that we believe in God, we are making a declaration that we have accepted who he has revealed himself to be. We have assented to the truth of his declaration. And more than that, we don't just believe in God. We believe God. We have, we have taken for granted, in a positive sense, the truths of what he has revealed concerning who he is and what he has done for us. That the nature of true faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. Faith, from a biblical perspective, is not just wishful thinking. Belief is not what you hope is true, what you think might be true, what, what might be really nice if it were true. Christian faith and Christian belief is a settled conviction and confidence based on the revelation of God to us. It is not wishful thinking about things that we think would be really nice if it were true. It is the settled conviction based on what we know to be true, about what God has truly revealed about himself to us, that faith is, is a firm confidence that God is who he has said he is, that he is who he is. When he says, I am who I am, we believe it, and we do not try and change him to be who we would rather him to be. The Baptist Catechism asks the question, what is faith in Jesus Christ? It answers, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. That true faith in the true God is a receiving divine revelation. That Jesus, the, the full and final revelation of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the true revelation of God, come to us in Christ, that we receive this, not critiquing it, not using human reason to, to try and form some better way of our own devising. We do not invent our own religion based on our rationality, but rather we accept what is true according to his revelation. And that doesn't mean casting our minds aside. We should use our intellect and understanding to to try and well understand everything that God has said about himself, but ultimately we must receive humbly his self-revelation. And more than just acknowledging these things to be true, we must positively place our faith to rest upon Christ alone for salvation. 
That as He reveals Himself to us, He also draws us to Himself. And for those of us who believe in Christ Jesus, who have a true and living faith in the true and living God, this is a confidence in the promises of Christ, that in Him and through Him, God is our Father. Not just Creator, but also Redeemer. That faith in Jesus Christ is receiving and resting upon Him alone, as He is offered to us in the Gospel. It is resting on the promises that He has made and accepting Him as He is offered to us, without qualification, simply to accept, simply to believe. It's been said often enough in the culture that it doesn't matter so much what you believe, but just that you believe it sincerely. That's a, a common sentiment that is in the culture around us today. But my friends, I must warn you that sincerity is not enough. And I'm sure that us sitting here today believe that. But there are many in the world who have convinced herself of this. That so long as I believe something sincerely, that's good enough. So long as it, as it helps me to feel comfort and to be a good person, then whatever belief that may be, it's good enough. Uh, there was a, a TV show, a sci-fi show in the early 2000s, where there was one character who was sort of vaguely religious. He was kind of meant to be like a, a priest of some sort, and they had a lot of religious conversations on the show. And, and at one point, I won't give any details because the character dies, and his last words as he's speaking to one of the other characters is he says, Believe. It doesn't matter what you believe, just believe. And my friends, the truth is that it absolutely matters what you believe. That no matter how sincere your belief may be, if what you believe isn't the truth, as Woody Bauckham says, you are merely sincerely wrong. Sincerity is not enough. General faith in a general higher being is not enough. What we must have is a true faith in the true God a genuine trust and reliance upon the I Am, upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, upon the God who redeemed the Israelites from their bondage, and who in Christ has redeemed us from slavery to sin. A true faith in a true God. For Hebrews eleven six, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. It is impossible to believe God, sorry, to please God without believing that He is who He truly is. That the more that we allow our perception of God to be distorted by our own preferences or by the ways of this world, the, the distortions of idolatry that surround us in a, in a more secularizing culture, the, the greater the pull is away from true faith in the true God. I, I hope that I, that's clear enough. I'm still feeling a little fuzzy from COVID, so I hope you're patient with me. That we confess ourselves to believe wholly and truly upon this God. And that more than believing in His objective existence, but that we believe Him and His promises. We don't just believe that He exists, we believe that He is for us in Christ Jesus. 
we believe that he is God the Father Almighty. That we believe in Father, Son, and Spirit as he has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. That our faith is necessarily a Trinitarian faith. That, as our confession says, chapter 2, paragraph 3, the last line, that the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on Him. That we are created by the speaking of the Father through the Word of the Son and upheld through the presence of the Spirit. And more so that we are redeemed by the election of the Father, by the redemption and intercession of the Son, and we are upheld by the presence and application of the Holy Spirit. That our existence, and even more so our salvation, is triune, is grounded in the very nature of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And more so that we can approach God as Father only through Christ the Son. That we, by nature, fallen in Adam, can rightly be considered children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as Mario preached on last week from Ephesians 2. That though we were created by God graciously and in His image to reflect His good character and His nature to creation in some sense, in a fallen state, we are estranged from our Creator. We are enemies of God from birth. That it is only through grace through faith in Christ, that children of wrath may be adopted sons and daughters of the living God. That by grace, through the working of the Spirit, that we may truly call Him Father. That John 1, 12-13, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That the gracious plan of God is to redeem us through the Son and making us likewise sons and daughters. To restore us to a right fellowship with this triune God that we were created for. That Romans 8.15, we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Zacharias or Sinus, he was one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. I used that a lot in studying for this. It was very helpful. He said that to believe in God the Father, therefore, is to believe in that God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to believe that He is also my Father, and as such has a fatherly affection toward me for and on account of Christ, in whom he has adopted me as his son. This is another reason why the triune God, that the Trinity is an essential belief for us as Christians, because it is only through coming to God as Father, Son, and Spirit that we too may be sons to the Divine Father. That we confess him to be God the Father Almighty. Almighty is one of his favorite titles for himself through the scriptures. He reveals to himself, he, he says that this is how he revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the Lord God Almighty. We see that from the beginning and all the way to the end, that Revelation 1.8, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, 
who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That He is the I Am. That Almighty goes beyond just His strength, but that He has all power, all being, all existence in and of Himself. The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes and says that God is His Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being and wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That we confess to believe in this God, the I Am, who through Scripture has revealed Himself to be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, perfect and infinite, eternal and visible, simple and self-sufficient, unchanging, impassable, incomprehensible, absolute, sovereign, merciful, just, kind, holy, righteous, wise, patient, altogether good. This is the God who spoke to Moses, who revealed himself to him. This is the maker of heaven and earth, the one who spoke all things into existence and who now continues to uphold them. Through the creation story of Genesis 1 through 2, we see God speaking all things into existing them and arranging them according to his good plan and purpose. That he created all things out of nothing, not rearranging any pre-existent matter, anything external to him that existed independent of him. Everything that exists stands upon God for its existence because he alone is I am. That he created all things and therefore all things exist and depend entirely on him to be. That Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. That when we say we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Heidelberg Catechism says, we confess that the eternal Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who of nothing made everything, heaven and earth and all that is in them, who likewise upholds and governs the same by his eternal counsel and providence, is for the sake of Christ, his Son, my God and Father, on whom I rely so entirely and have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body, and further that whatever evils he sends upon me in this life, in this valley of tears, will turn out to my advantage. For he is able to do it, being Almighty God, and willing to do it, being a faithful Father. That he is the God who is created and upholds all things. And beyond that, he governs all things by his great providence. That our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3 That he even now, the Father through the Son and Spirit, upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 We do not exist in a clockwork cosmos where God simply formed rules and principles and matter to work together and let it loose and step back to watch from a distance. We serve a God who is intimately involved with all of his creation and moment by moment upholding us and all things and working all things for the good of his people. Then in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 that the providence of God means that 
all things must work together for the good of his people and his ultimate glory. And so this is the God that we believe. This is the God that we confess in closing application. We must believe in this God, the I Am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord God Almighty. When Paul preaches in the Areopagus in Athens, in Acts 17, 24 through 28, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwellings, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and to find him. Yet he is not actually far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This God has condescended to reveal himself to us through creation and in redemption. And so we approach this God, believing that he exists, but also believing the truthfulness of his promises and clinging to them, approaching God as Father through Christ the Son. That as we believe and confess the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we are united to him by faith, as we are united to Christ the Son, we too are counted as sons and daughters. And that in every day we would ponder anew what the Almighty can do, as we sang earlier. That every day we should be drawn to worship this God for whom nothing is too great, for whom no redemption is too difficult. We delight in this Almighty God and in his good creation, as, as fallen and as difficult as this world may be, though, though sickness continues to, to ravage, as accident and injury continue to take its toll, and, and even as COVID continues to keep me a little bit cloudy, we can still rejoice in the good creation that God has placed us in. We can still declare with the heavens the glory of the Lord. We can still trust in his most holy, wise, and powerful providence, that the God who upholds and governs all things is a good and wise Father, who directs all things for our ultimate good as those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And finally, that we as Moses should tell the nations, I am has sent me to you. As, as God told Moses, bring this message of redemption to my people. So we, in Christ, bring the gospel message to all who will hear, so that God through us may gather his people to himself, that they may gather at his holy mountain for worship. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> o Lord of hosts, God Almighty, you are good. And you are glorious, self-existent and infinite and eternal. Lord, we could spend all of every day singing your praises and your glory and still not even scratch the surface. But Lord, you give us an eternity in Christ to do so. 
we pray, God, that you would help us to draw near to you through Christ the Son. That you would help us to see who you are and to confess what you have done for us and to declare that all the world may know the glories of your redemption. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>